Ya está aquí la próxima generación de tecnología Wi-Fi y es solo de Xfinity. Da superpoder a tu hogar con Wi-Fi supersónico. Conecta cientos de equipos al mismo tiempo y experimenta tres veces el ancho de banda para conexiones más confiables. Con Advanced Security que bloquea miles de millones de amenazas dentro y ahora también fuera de casa. Es Wi-Fi de próxima generación que cambia las reglas del juego. Solo de Xfinity. Para más información, visita es.xfinity.com diagonal supersonic. Se aplican restricciones. Las velocidades reales varían y no están garantizadas. Have you guys noticed that you can't go anywhere without seeing designer this or designer that, even designer furniture? On my social feeds and celebrity homes, it's everywhere. Have you seen how expensive these are? Well, if you want the sofa or recliner or bed that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends, but without the designer prices. Oh, and they're well-made, too. It's the whole package. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. If you've ever been a renter, you know it's stressful to find a place with everything you love and nothing you don't. But did you know Zillow does rentals? It makes the search so easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find that place that's in your budget, but also isn't a shoebox. Or a place that's close to your parents, but far enough they have to call first. Plus, it's easy to apply, request tours, and pay rent in the app. Head to ZillowRentals.com and find your sweet spot. From coast to coast, border to border, and around the world, you're going online with Bill Alexander. Laugh and learn while you listen to a brilliant display of radio. Online, Online. with Bill Alexander. Bill Alexander. Hi, everyone. Yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill, and you're online with Bill Alexander here on WMCK.FM, the Keysport. 1075 WLDJ Newcastle, 1620 AM Huntington, Mixtape Radio International, Steel FM, WWSX Radio 99.1 FM, Radio Rehoboth, Orca Radio in Owensburg, Kentucky, and streaming online live at italknet.com and also at pghtalkradio.com. Hope everything's going fine for you on this Monday evening, February 1st, 2021. For those of you that are in the eastern part of the United States, you got hit with a snowstorm over the weekend. I also got hit with one, but we'll be fine because tomorrow is the second. And in the state of Pennsylvania, that means to us Groundhog Day. (laughs) So we'll be hanging on every word of Punxsutawney Phil tomorrow to see if the weather is going to get better. I doubt it will, but hey, it's worth a shot and it's a kind, uh, it's a fun old um, tradition that we do here in uh, Western Pennsylvania, actually more central PA, but still we like to talk about it. Anyway, tonight on the telephone, we have an interview with an author by the name of Timothy Caulfield. He wrote a book called Your Day, Your Way, the fact and fiction behind your daily decisions. Now, I I think the book is really interesting, especially when the first line of the book goes, you're going to feel pretty bad if your son dies. You're going to feel horrible. Tim, where did that line come from? (laughs) That is a line. It's a true story. Uh, Having dinner with the whole extended family, and I announced that I'm going to go skydiving, which no one really cares about. No one cares if Uncle Tim falls to his death. But I said that I was going to take my 14-year-old son with me, which was just the cutoff for skydiving. Uh, and uh, everyone thought I was crazy. And I use it as a way to explore how bad we are, all of us, okay. at perceiving risk. 
and it's and then the the book takes off from there, as you know. And and the the gimmick of the book is it takes place over a typical day. You know the kind of decisions that we make all day long. And I look at what the evidence says about all those decisions about when to wake up, should you drink coffee, you know, even getting dressed, having breakfast, and on and on I go until you go to bed at night. And I've been because I've been studying misinformation and decision making for for decades it's what i do as a as a academic and i thought this would be an interesting way a sort of a relatable way to look at all of the forces that shape our decision making i think it's interesting because i don't think um people really think about their daily decisions as something that may impact their life further down the road and when i started reading this i'm going I never thought of that before. Not that I don't make decisions daily, but what impact they may have years down the line. And I thought that was a very interesting way of looking at it, because if I drink coffee today, how's that going to affect me in a month? How's that going to affect me in the year? Is it going to worsen my health? Is it going to make me better? How's it going to work? And again, I think that concept is really interesting, that it's like that, that idea of a leaf falling in a pond, the ripple effect that falls out from there. Well, it is it is interesting, and we live in a time when the information environment is so incredibly chaotic. And one of the big themes in the book is that chaotic information environment is stressing us out. You know about how the kind of decisions we make, and think about what's happening in a pandemic, oh, yeah. right? All the, the all of this misinformation that is permeating our lives, it does stress us out. And and you're right, uh, the, the decisions we make can have consequences. Or not, Bill, because some of the, the decisions we make are based on fear-mongering, you know, or, or they're based on our misperception mm-hmm. of risk. And so we may worry too much about a particular decision and not enough about, about another one. And look, the book isn't meant to you know, tell people how they're supposed to live their lives and tell people this is the decision you make, kind of almost on the contrary. It really is to say, you know, here are the forces that shape the decisions that all of us make, and here's what the evidence says about those particular decisions. And as you know, I try to have a lot of fun right. throughout the book. You know, I, I take some topics that aren't so serious, like toilet seat up, toilet <laughs> seat down, or and then and other decisions that are a little bit more consequential and, and relevant to our our decisions as as you know as employees, you know, as, as bosses, as parents, um, and even as someone just trying to take care of ourselves. You know, trying to live a healthy life. When you talk about those decisions, the minor ones, like you said, toilet seat up, toilet seat down, uh, toilet paper flap over or under, and like that, a lot of those decisions that we make, we don't think about them because either we were taught to do it that way or it just become it just becomes habit. Because I know the whole idea of the toilet seat up and down, whenever you're a bachelor, you don't worry about it. But when you get married then you get trained to do it the right way, because if not, you hear about it at 2.30 in the morning. And again, it's those decisions that after a while, you don't even think about them. Well, well it's interesting, the toilet seat up and toilet seat... So you, as you know, in the book, I cover a whole bunch of different topics, and that one generated so much debate, and you know, people arguing with me in the hallway and you know, <laughs> uh, at work. You know, people really feel passionate about toilet seat up, toilet seat down. And Bill, believe it or not... There's actually research on this. Because, oh, I believe it. You know, mathematicians thought this would be a fun thing to do some mathematical modeling on, and so there have actually been people have taken it relatively serious to try to decide, you know, should you leave it up or should you put it down? 
And, um, you know, the, I, the answer <laughs> is that most people from a strictly objective sort of modeling perspective err on the side of what's called the one-touch procedure. You know, you, you, everyone has an obligation to touch it once. So if it's up, you put it down. If it's down, ah. you, you put it up. Okay. Uh, but I'll tell you something. <laughs> that, that doesn't, you know, uh, factor in what your partner might think about it. And it also doesn't fact, factor in, you know, now the toilet plume, as they call it. So you want to put the lid down. Right. But anyway, that's a really good decision about how a good example of how there is evidence out there that that people might be surprised about. Now, the other thing you talk about too is misinformation, and we we've been dealing with I think more misinformation in the last decade or so, not because of traditional news media, but because of social media, because anybody can put anything out there. And people will believe it. Same thing with anybody can put um, write a blog, they can do a podcast, they can do whatever it may be. And if enough people start to believe it, they start pushing around that misinformation. And with that happening, we've seen what has happened just this past year with mask on or no mask. And it's interesting to me that there's still some people that are so stringence in their beliefs that they're not you're you're not able to give them information to make them sway either way because they believe their way is right and there's no other way that's going to uh change them well this is actually the area where we do most of our research myself and our research team at the uh, at the institute in fact we have a grant uh, on that exact topic right now and you're you're right you're right the misinformation around, and I've been studying misinformation, as I said, for decades, for decades, and I've never seen anything like what we have right now. Misinformation is absolutely everywhere, <clears throat> and, it, and it really is having an impact on how we are responding as individuals and as a society to the pandemic. And, and, and something that you raised, excuse me, <clears throat> something that you raised right there is ex- very relevant, and this is the the... Uh, use of ideology um, to shape our decision-making. And what's happened, and I think there's a good evidence to back this up, is that increasingly bits of misinformation have now become ideological flags. And once that happens, you know, studies tell us it becomes more difficult to change an individual's mind. So what do I mean by that? Um, wearing masks or hydroxychloroquine doesn't become an issue of, of evidence in science. It becomes an issue of ideology. You know, be it a mask or no mask becomes an ideological flag. Believing that uh, hydroxychloroquine is effective becomes an ideological right. flag. And, and unfortunately, once that happens, it becomes increasingly difficult to change people's minds. So what we need to do, and I talk about this in the book, is get to, pe- get to the misinformation, correct the misinformation, before before that happens. And so it's, it really is a call to, to counter misinformation uh, as soon as, as, as it emerges. Look, people, 28% of Americans believe that Bill Gates uh, yeah. started the pandemic in order to put microchips in us. And that's a pretty hardcore conspiracy theory. Right. But it's partly it's because now it's become part of an ideological package. And, um, yeah, so it really highlights how incredibly important it is to take misinformation seriously. But do people realize how ridiculous that sounds because they they say that they want to track them? Well, guys, you're carrying cell phones around. Yeah, they have GPS a in them. in your pocket. They're tracking you already. I mean, they're not going to put anything in you. 
the other thing is too, and now, and I'm going back to when I was in college. I'm I'm a communication graduate because we had to do that before you got into radio. You had to have a bachelor's degree in communications, unlike today where anybody can do it. And one of my professors told me that as individuals, we cannot change someone's mind. We can give them information for them to change it, but we cannot physically do it. But what I'm noticing in 2020 and 2021, people don't want to listen to other people's facts because they feel they're right through and through. And they will tell you, no matter what you say, you can tell me the sky is blue and I'll still tell you that it's aquamarine. And I'll still argue that point until you get tired of arguing with me or we're just done talking to each other. And that's what I don't understand how societies change that much because not we're not willing to be tolerant with each other. We just want to be right in the heck with everything else. Well, there's a whole bunch going on there, Bill. <laughs> you know, part of it uh part of it is the reality. You, you know, there's evidence to back up that the good news, let's start with the good news. The good news is if you look at the body of evidence, debunking as I often call it, countering misinformation does work. Okay. Now, what do I mean by that? Yeah, I mean if you measure it on a population level. As you just pointed out, it's very hard to change the minds of the individual standing in front. I mean, how often does that happen? You know, where you, you argue with someone and they go, you know what, now that you mention it, you're right. I mean, that never, that never happens. And, and it's particularly so when there are individuals that are hardcore deniers, right? Hard, the yes. hardcore deniers, it's incredibly difficult to change their mind. And, and so rule number one of debunking is don't waste your energy on the hardcore deniers. Always think of the general public as your audience. So that general public might actually be the general public if you have the opportunity to have that kind of audience, or it might be your family, it might be, you know, your friends. It's very difficult to change the mind of, of, the, of the hardcore denier. But the other problem is, as you highlight, and this goes back to my comment about ideology, is, is you're increasingly getting these communities, and often the communities are built around social media, and they talk to each other, right? So you have, you're amplifying that confirmation bias, you're amplifying that echo chamber, and it becomes very difficult uh, to change the minds of those individuals in that community. One of the ways you hopefully can do it is to engage the entire community, but even that that can be you know, extremely difficult. So you're right, we're, we're living in this world, chaotic information environment, social media has amplified the echo chamber effect, incredibly polarized, but still, still, I believe that, you know, if you counter misinformation appropriately, if you teach critical thinking, we can make a difference. And, and there is some evidence that, that that will work. I, I always like to think of it as the movable middle. You know, you have those hardcore deniers, Bill, you know, on one end of the spectrum, whether you're talking about vaccines, whether you're talking about GMOs, whether you're talking about whatever, right? You have that, those, those really hardcore deniers on, on, on one end. Uh, but the rest of the individuals are, are, you know, the movable middle, you know, and, and if you can get good, credible information to that community, I think you can make a difference. Now, one thing you talk about in your book about how different times of the day affects decision making. Does that also take also come into play whenever we're receiving information that if I receive it in the morning, I'm more open to it than if I would receive it in the afternoon? Yeah, there there is a decision fatigue, and I think everyone can probably relate to this. With <laughs> a, a, a decision fatigue, you know, the more decisions we make, the more difficult it becomes, especially if the if the decisions are are quite weighty and 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 require a lot of cognitive effort. 
Um, and so we do the at the very at the very least, Bill. As the day wears on, our decision making becomes is different, right? So um, this this impacts judges, this impacts physicians, you know, this impacts teachers, you know, on and on and on. And they've, and they've done research to demonstrate that. So um, you know, we do have you know decision fatigue that that has an impact on, and and that's one of the reasons that I talk again talk about this in the book. You want to think about how you structure your day. For the kind, uh, the kind of work that you do. Look, this is not going to be a surprise to people. They probably, other people have heard that. You've got to find that when you have a tough task or a, a task that requires a lot of creativity, you've got to find that sweet spot for you. And for some people, that's really early in the morning. That's the way I am. I like to work, do my creative stuff first. And other people might find it late a.m. But but do remember that there is this this decision fatigue that can in, impact you know how how you how you deal with issues. The other thing I didn't think about while looking at this, and and I think that we do it, and I don't think we do it to sabotage ourselves, but the later in the day it gets, especially those that um, use food as a uh, stress reliever, the more stress they receive in the day, then they start eating. And it's always snack food or junk food that gives them that, that makes them feel good. And if it would happen earlier in the day, they would probably make better decisions, correct? Um, there is some evidence to back up exactly what you've said. You know, we have to be careful, you know, to, not to overgeneralize because everyone, you know, I, I always, I, I, in, in one of my previous books, I, I really, you know, tackled this topic in, in some depth. And, and I would say that the best diet is the diet that works for you. Okay. Right? The diet that is healthy, that is sustainable, and that works for you. There really is no magic magic diet, but you know, again, being careful not to overgeneralize. You know, there is you know, the evidence that you know, if people get more tired and uh, they have a tendency to to eat more junk food, uh, and that's one reason why individuals that are night owls, you know, that is correlated with um, other bad health uh, lifestyle habits okay. like eating junk food. Doesn't apply to everyone, right? You know, have to correlation causation, but that correlation certainly is there. And, and as you point out, um, that's part of the speculation is is fatigue. And it's also some speculation why people they don't sleep as well. I'm sure you've heard this too that there's a correlation again. Got to be careful not to overinterpret the data. Correlation causation, but it's there's a correlation also between not sleeping well, right? And you know, having being tired, having a bad night's sleep, uh, and and eating habits. Um, so. You're right. It's all tied together. Uh, the other thing you mentioned, too, is, and and it never crossed my mind until this past week, I guess it is, and the whole idea about stock analysts being able to perform at different times of the day better with everything that happened with GameStop over this last week. Like, did they see this happening? Was it? Did it happen later in the day? Did it happen in the morning? How did it happen? That it this whole idea just took the country by storm by buying these stocks, and the stock analysts never saw it coming. And I think it's yeah, interesting it, that you touch on that too. Yeah, it, it is. It is incredible. And, and and as you can imagine, this is the kind of research you can do because you have a pretty big data set, right? People making decisions about stocks, and you can absolutely, you know, see see patterns. You know, it's the same with. Uh, people who are on committees and they're making decisions about hiring people. They're making decisions about what grants to right. uh, to to give out. 
we are, the timing of, makes all the difference in the world. Did you have, did you eat? Are you sleepy? Is, are you about to take a lunch break? And you know what I find interesting is it just adds to the arbitrariness of, of the decision, right? And, and uh, people, you know, put in these applications or they put in, uh, are they making a determination about what stock to buy? And you have these kind of arbitrary factors that, that weigh much more than many people may realize. So, if if you would make a bad decision because you're not thinking about it, it happens. Is there a way that you can counteract that decision, or do you just move on and hopefully that eventually that that decision doesn't affect your outcome? Well, that's that's a really interesting question in ways that maybe you don't you don't realize. One of the things that we all do is we want to be decisionally consistent. So. What we sometimes do um, is we make a decision um, because it fits our personal brand, for example, or because we think it's, it's, it's decisionally consistent with a past decision that we made. Let me give you an example. So let's say you, for some reason you decide you're only going to eat organic food, and, and then avoiding GMO seems consistent with that decision. And so then what you do is you reverse engineer a justification for coming to that decision. Okay. Um, even though, even though, if you did sort of a dispassionate um, evidence analysis of that decision, you may not have come to the same decision. But you want to be decisionally consistent, and you want to make decisions that fit your personal brand, so your personal identity, not only how you view yourself, but how you want others to view you. And we all do this. It sounds like I'm pointing fingers. I'm not. <laughs> we all do it. You know, I joke about you know how I've done it in the past and um, and some of the writing I've done. But but that kind of decision consistency uh, can have a real impact on the decisions we make throughout the day. So the one question I have to ask you before we end this this evening: Did you take your 14 year old son skydiving? Uh, I absolutely did. I don't know if you've ever gone ski- <laughs> skydiving. Uh, a couple things. First of all, holy cow, it is an intense experience. <laughs> Way more terrifying than I anticipated. My 14-year-old absolutely loved it. Uh, and when I, find, when I jumped out the window, so, so did I. But I can tell you, it's not like, have you ever done it? No, I haven't. <laughs> It's it's not like on. I'm sure many of your listeners have done it. It's not like on TV, you know. Like so, my son went first and was like, "Oh my god, what have I done?" Yeah. Because I'll tell you, they drop and in an instant. He's like a pin, right? It's not like on TV where you catch up to him. He's like gone, uh, and then you know you jump. It's an incredibly, uh, it's an incredible experience. Uh, I loved it. So with that that's interesting that you said your son loves it because I imagine the older we get, the less risk we take. And in the teenage years, in the early 20s, that's when we're going to take more risks in our lives. Uh, absolutely. That's absolutely uh, correct. And, and the other funny thing is, is, one of the reasons I thought Scott Darwin was such a great example, is I, I did kind of get sort of lightly scolded by my friends and, and other parents for doing this. And, and it's interesting because, you know, some of these parents, their kids played hockey. Right. Right. Uh, some of the, my, uh, cause, you know, I'm in Canada, that's <laughs> every kid plays hockey. Uh, my son is a serious gymnast. Uh, both of those activities, order of magnitude more dangerous than skydiving. Wow. Right. Uh, but no one scolds me for having my son in gym, gymnastics. And I'm not saying those decisions are bad. On the, you know, on the contrary, I'm just trying to say 
how you know our perceptions of risk uh, are influenced by a whole bunch of things that that we don't realize. And what I think is interesting, you talk about skydiving, which is usually a one-time event, but when the kids reach their their mid to late teens, we give them a vehicle to drive. Yeah, yeah. and they do well, that day in and day out for most thing. cases. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. It's one of the most you know single most dangerous things that humans do. Um, I, you know, driving to the place where we did went skydiving is probably a thousand times more dangerous than the sky. I'll give you another example. Another example that's really powerful if we have time here. Yeah, we do. Uh, in the book, uh, in the book, I, I talk about letting your kid walk to school, and um, as you probably know, it's the same not only in in Canada, the United States, but really around the world. Fewer and fewer parents are letting their yes. kids walk to school. And research tells us, and this is true, it's interesting, because this is true in Scandinavia, you know, I refer to Scandinavian research, and it's in Europe and all over. The, the number one reason, uh, if you believe the research, uh, is stranger danger. You know, right. Parents are worried their kid is, some horrific things can happen to their kid. Even though, in most neighborhoods, you know, I want to be careful, again, not to overgeneralize, but in most danger, uh, uh, neighborhoods, it is so vanishingly rare that those occurrences happen um, that it, you can almost categorize it as not going to happen. But, but the, we think it's, it's, it, it's going to happen because when it does happen, it's a huge story. It's headline news, right? So our availability bias kicks in. It's incredibly scary. We can't think of a worse thing that could ever happen to our kids. We're, we're surrounded by TV shows, CSI, Criminal Minds, that make it seem like there's predators absolutely everywhere, even though crime rates are like, you know, low, you know, lower than they've almost ever been. On the other side of the equation, walking to school, you get exercise, mm-hmm. you, you, you experience independence, you have these you know, moments of, of, of socializing right, with your, your friends, and, and maybe it's just a quiet time for your kid during an otherwise busy busy day, right? So you have these sort of tangible benefits, but it's hard for us to weigh those kind of more amorphous benefits versus this horrific fear, and therefore we err on the side of driving. And then what happens is it becomes a social norm, you get this cohort effect happening, and then all of a sudden there's more traffic in front of the school, and then it does that becomes a concern, you have this horrible cycle happening. So that's a really good example of how, how you know, sometimes our intention doing something good for a kid doesn't match um, what the evidence actually says around the decision that we make. And by, and I, I emphasize, I've got four kids, so I totally get this. I'm yeah. not pointing fingers at all. It's rather a very interesting and complex social phenomenon. Because I know, and I grew up in the 70s and 80s and then went to college and start of life. Um but when we were kids in the early 70s, even in the, in the late 70s, you would leave the house and be gone the whole day. And when you were told to come back when the lights came on or your friends were going into their homes because you were out all day. Now, me being a parent, I have a 13 year old daughter and we live in a community. Like you said, we have a convenience store and this and that. I actually hold my breath. When she walks a block and a half, the convenience store, because I'm worried about something happening. But again, it, it, like you said, the odds of it happening are slim and none. It's slim, slim to none. And, you know, I, I, and I was like you growing up, you know, I, I would, and I'm talking young, you know, young, oh, yeah. I would head out the door. My mom, I remember my mom give me a quarter. I'd go to the Rawlinson 
store, which was like blocks and blocks away, <laughs> you know, like like a long walk by myself, and I'd get candy. Um, and and the interesting thing is the crime rate then. So this would have been like you, you know, seventies, way worse yeah. than now. <laughs> like way worse, <laughs> you know. The, you know, and the traffic rules were you know worse then, and on and on and on. Um, yeah, it, 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 incredible, and, and not pointing fingers. I totally get it. I totally get it. You know, being a parent and growing up in this environment with these expectations, I totally get it. But it really does demonstrate, just more as, a, as an example of how, you know, our intentions uh, and the decisions we make are shaped by interesting social forces, but also don't really map necessarily what the, what the evidence says. And, of course, there's different circumstances, and people maybe drive for a whole bunch of different reasons. Right. But... But just looking at this globally, it is an interesting social phenomenon. Well, Tim, it's hard to believe we're almost out of time, but I could go on forever um, because what you're talking about interests me a lot. And I think if anybody picks up the book, they'll feel the same way. And again, it's your day, your way, the fact and fiction behind your daily decisions. Is there anything you want to tell my audience before I let you go tonight? One thing I'll say is, you know what, you can most Mostly, you can ignore all that noise in the chaotic information environment and, and focus on those evidence-informed basics, and that'll take you a long way. Um, I find it kind of. Hopefully, people will find that that kind of liberating. And um, with your with your book now, the other thing is too, and I and I asked you this before the program, but the book is actually out in multiple titles, correct? Um, in the States, it's your day, your way, and then um, it's Relax, Damn It, <laughs> A User Guide to the Age of Anxiety, which is the same book, different title, right? That's right. Every country decided to emphasize something slightly different. So I think I think the, in the U.S., they, you know, they think they needed a little bit of good news. <laughs> well, I wonder why. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's spin the positive, right, Bill? Yeah. I I still like the cover. Relax, damn it! That would have jumped up to me immediately. But that's funny. Um, again, Timothy, thank you very much. I will share the uh, where the um, my listeners can buy the book at, and it's available at Amazon and all the other bookstores that you can find online. And again, thank you, Tim, very much for joining me this evening. And you have a great rest of your evening. Thanks very much, Bill. Really enjoyed. Thank you Bye-bye. very much. Bye bye. Tim Caulfield, Uh, the name of the book is Your Day, Your Way, The Fact and Fiction Behind Your Daily Decisions. Again, great book. And when a book comes out and the first line is, you're going to feel pretty bad if your son dies. You're going to feel horrible. When you hear that in your open, (laughs) when you first read the book, you know it's going to be a winner. But again, a very interesting book. And again, it goes through the, your your daily decisions and how that may affect you and how we make those decisions. And again, 30 minutes um, is not long enough to discuss it, but hopefully we'll have him back on the program again to be able to discuss more about the book. And again, I will put the link in my uh, in, on my website and also on the podcast page for the those of you that download this at a later date we're going to come right back um, in just a moment but until then i gotta do this let's see if this works the way we want it to tonight okay okay 
Online with Bill Alexander is on WMCK.FM, McKeesport, PA, WWSX Radio 99.1 FM, Rehoboth, Delaware, 107.5 FM, WLDJ, Newcastle, PA, 1620 AM, Huntington Community Radio, Huntington, PA, Hall of Fame Music Radio, HOFMRadio.com, Mixtape International Radio, MTRI.CO.UK, SteelFM.org, Community Radio for Scunthorpe, Orca Radio, Owensburg, Kentucky, and streaming live on pghtalkradio.com. And a big thank you to my friend Anna Vocino for doing that um, for us. So that way I don't have to do it every week. And I appreciate you guys listening to the program tonight. And we'll be talking to the author next week, um, Trudy Truitt, here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. You guys have a great night. You guys have a great week. We'll talk to you next time here online. With yours truly, Bill Alexander. This has been a Million Dollar Baby production. For more information, go to italknet.com. If you've ever been a renter, you know it's stressful to find a place with everything you love and nothing you don't. But did you know Zillow does rentals? It makes the search so easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find that place that's in your budget, but also isn't a shoebox. Or a place that's close to your parents. But far enough, they have to call first. Plus, it's easy to apply, request tours, and pay rent in the app. Head to ZillowRentals.com and find your sweet spot. If you've ever been a renter, you know it's stressful to find a place with everything you love and nothing you don't. But did you know Zillow does rentals? It makes the search so easy. They have filters for pretty much everything. So you can find that place that's in your budget, but also isn't a shoebox. Or a place that's close to your parents. But far enough, they have to call first. Plus, it's easy to apply, request tours, and pay rent in the app. Head to ZillowRentals.com and find your sweet spot.